Welcome to The Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Hello, I'm Andrew Rennie. On this evening's The Space Show, hey, it's the winter solstice. <laughs> we won't be talking about that, but just thought you might like to remember it's the winter solstice. And on the show, Woman of Space, the Woman of Space in Music and Talk. And we'll have a few brief items about the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter and the forthcoming HERA mission to the double asteroid Denimos and Dimorphos. And get your diary handy, because we have an entry for it. The Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter was launched in 2009 and so it's been in orbit now around the moon for 14 years. Well, this feature uh, of the extended mission was prepared by the Goddard Space Flight Centre last year. This year, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter celebrates 13 years of orbit around our Moon. And in that time, it has collected over a petabyte of data, the largest volume ever collected by a planetary science mission at NASA. Due to its success and continued operational abilities, NASA has awarded the spacecraft an additional extended mission phase so that it can continue gathering critical information on the Moon and help pave the way for future lunar missions. Going forward, the LRO mission will have four main areas of focus. The first is the study of volatiles, which are chemicals that easily evaporate or vaporize, such as water. In terms of lunar exploration, volatiles will be useful for things like creating rocket fuel and making oxygen to breathe, so they are a primary resource that future astronauts will depend on having. LRO will continue to provide new data for identifying which areas are rich in volatiles and for cluing us in to how they may move around the lunar surface. Current LRO data suggests they may be frozen in permanently shadowed craters, in areas that receive some sunlight, and may be chemically locked in minerals on the moon. This is helping pave the way for future missions like Viper, which will send a robotic rover to explore an area near the lunar south pole, and ultimately, the astronaut-led Artemis missions. The second area of focus is on the moon's interior, volcanic features, and the tectonics of the Moon's surface, because understanding the lunar surface requires knowledge of what's been going on underneath. Scientists want to figure out when the Moon was last volcanically active, and how current geologic processes, like moonquakes, could affect the safety of future exploration. They'll do these things by studying lobate scarps, 
as well as deep crustal and mantle composition that are exposed at the surface. Studying the Moon's history of volcanism and tectonics will also inform us about other planetary bodies in our solar system and beyond. The third area of focus is on the Moon's surface, its regolith and impact craters. We want to know how impact craters break down and if different ejected materials might degrade at different rates. These studies will give us a better understanding of the mineral and chemical makeup of the lunar surface and subsurface. This information can tell us how the Moon has changed over hundreds of millions or billions of years. Studying the Moon's regolith and impact craters also informs scientists about space weathering, which can help similar studies looking at the Earth, as well as on places like Mars, Mercury, or even asteroids. The last focus area for LRO going forward is support for future missions. NASA has plans for numerous missions to go to the lunar surface during LRO's extended phase. Sending missions to the lunar surface requires planning, not only to build the mission, but to find safe and interesting landing sites. LRO is in a unique position to directly assist with some of those operations and science objectives. LRO can help identify landing sites by making maps that tell us what the surface is like, where there may be hazards to landers, and where there are interesting features to explore. LRO is also capable of helping landed missions get simultaneous measurements from orbit while they gather data from the surface. After studying the moon for 13 years, LRO has proven to be one of NASA's most valuable tools for advancing lunar science. And as it continues collecting data, the spacecraft helps lead the way for future exploration of our moon. And do you remember last year, the DART mission? And the, <laughs> yes, the, the DART board was a bullseye uh, of a, a double asteroid. Well, we're going to hear a little bit more about that. And soon the European Space Agency will be looking uh, to launch a mission called HERA towards the same asteroid, not only to find out what DART did to the asteroid, but also to find out new things about the asteroid. The Incredible Adventures of the Hera Mission. In 1609, Italian astronomer Galileo Galilei became the first person to use a new invention, the telescope, to look at the moon. He was astounded to find strange circular features. Great minds of the time thought they could be volcanoes, glaciers, or even coral. Fast forward to the 20th century, and scientists had discovered many of these craters throughout our solar system, and even on Earth. They realized the craters must have been formed by explosive impacts. Space rocks smashing into moons and planets. Exciting. Studying craters became key for us to learn about the evolution of the solar system. They're like time stamps. The more craters, the older the surface. But there's only so much you can work out without knowing exactly what made a crater. So, we need to create a crater. For this quest, ESA's HERA Asteroid Detective 
is teaming up with NASA's DART, which is on a collision course with an asteroid called Dimorphos. DART aims to create the solar system's newest and perhaps most important crater. This time, we will know precisely the size, mass and speed of the crater maker. DART will never actually see the crater it forms, so to unveil its secrets, Hera will take to the stage. Hera will take high-resolution images to chart its size and shape. The collision will blast out material from under the surface of Dimorphos, giving Hera a unique peek into what the asteroid is made of. Analyzing this new timestamp will even help us work out how long ago Dimorphos was formed. Hera's discoveries will reveal more about the history and future of our solar system and help us learn how to deflect asteroids away from a collision course with Earth. It all starts with creating a crater. And yes, it did uh, make, <laughs> make the crater, although we just, as I said, we don't know how big it is. And it also changed the orbit of the small moon. Yes, changed the orbit and changed the period by about half an hour. Well, let's hear more about the HERA mission and the engineers involved. The DART impact is going to be an incredible moment, something we've been looking for for over 17 years. My name is Jan Carnelli and I'm leading the HERA mission for the European Space Agency. The deflection by DART will be measurable from ground with telescopes. However, only with HERA coming up close and inspecting the Aster will unveil all of those parameters that will allow us to plan for a deflection mission if one day we need one. This is the propulsion module of the ERA spacecraft that will take us to asteroid Dimorphos and will allow us to study the results of the DART impact. The propulsion module is being built here in Italy and then will be sent to Germany where will be mated with the instruments and the rest of the spacecraft to be ready for launch in October 2024. We started designing and conceiving the whole mission and the spacecraft about two years ago and we have a launch date to meet that is a fixed date in October 2024. So it's challenging, but we're making it possible. You could say that HERA is really three space missions in one. We have one, the main spacecraft that we are currently building at OHP in Germany. But we also have two smaller missions that are spacecraft in their own right. Those are the two CubeSats, Juventus and Milani. The CubeSat I'm working on is Milani, which will perform spectral measurements and dust detection following the DART impact. My name is Margherita Cardi from Pevac International in Italy. We will work alongside the other CubeSat, Juventus, which will perform kind of an X-ray of the asteroid to understand the internal structure. This is going to be the first time that we have CubeSats on board an ESA spacecraft. Once we arrive there, we will be deploying the CubeSats in order to complement ESA's scientific observations, taking more risk, but also trying to have higher rewards. The CubeSats will be installed on two panels that will be mounted on each side of the structure of HERA. They are just the size of shoebox, however, they contain complex technology which will really allow to bring added value to the HERA mission. 
Air and Dart represent a fantastic international collaboration between NASA and ESA. The two missions complement each other and will validate an asteroid deflection technique that we could use in the future to protect planet Earth. Outer space is closer to Melbourne than Geelong, Ballarat or Bendigo. The Space Show, Wednesdays at 7pm. The first man in space was Yuri Gagarin, who made one orbit of the Earth on 1961, April the 12th. Sixty years ago, last Friday, Valentina Tereshkova rode Vostok 6 to orbit, spent three days orbiting our planet, then landed back in the Soviet Union. The world's first spacewoman was a worldwide sensation. Her call sign was Chaikya, which is Russian for seagull. She therefore became known as the Space Seagull. Two years later, Konstantin Listov and Lev Kondraev got together and composed the music for and the lyrics of a song to be sung by Alexei Martinov. Here is their song. Song about the space seagull.
1960, in the United States, former flight surgeon William Lovelace, as a private venture, tested 13 women with the same medical tests as had been applied to the famous seven Mercury male astronauts. Jerry Cobb was one of those women. Despite pleas to NASA, the women were never allowed to become astronauts. Jerry Cobb did actually go into space uh, on a suborbital flight, you know, that uh, tourist flight, courtesy of Jeff Bezos and his Blue Origin group. This is The Space Show. You're listening to 88.3 Southern FM, the sounds of the Bayside. Where on The Space Show we are looking at the woman in space, celebrating a number of important anniversaries. Well, 20 years and two days after Valentina's flight, the United States orbited its first woman. 40 years ago, on 1983, June the 18th, Sally Ride was a crew member aboard the STS-7 Space Shuttle mission. Move forward six decades from Valentina Tereshkova and four decades from Sally Ride, and we now have the era of commercial spaceflight and suborbital near space experiences. The participation of women in these flights is no longer remarked upon. Sirisha Bandla is an Indian-born United States citizen who flew on Virgin Galactic's Unity 22 suborbital mission to an altitude of 86 kilometres on 2021, July the 11th. At the time, she was Vice President of Government Affairs and Research Operations for Virgin Galactic. Bandler had hoped to become a NASA astronaut but was ineligible on medical grounds due to her eyesight. And we note that Virgin Galactic made a test flight last month and is due to make its first commercial flight sometime between June 27 and June 30 this year. There will be three passengers from the Italian Air Force and the National Research Council of Italy to conduct microgravity research. And Virgin Galactic plans a second commercial flight from August and thereafter monthly, they hope. Well, no one funded by the Australian government has ever flown in space. However, the first government-sponsored Australian astronaut is now in training. And, surprise, surprise, it is a woman, not a man. European Space 
Agency astronaut Frank DeWin, the head of the European Space Agency's European Astronaut Centre in Cologne, welcomes the new class of astronaut candidates, including Catherine Burnell Pegg from Australia. Uh, welcome everybody from uh, my side uh, here in the European Astronaut Centre. Of course, it's a very joyful uh, day for us. It was a very joyful day on the 3rd of April when uh, the new class uh, started their training here, but it's uh, very joyful to see. Uh, it's of course great that uh, after a period of uh, selection, it, which lasted about two years, uh, and the final announcement of the, the class of 2022 at the last ministerial conference that we have now our astronauts here present in the center, that they are working and training here uh, in their daily lives. And uh, of course, it's uh, very good uh, for us and for all the people involved, but especially for the astronauts. We are very proud here at ESC because not everybody is doing basic training for the International Space Station. Actually, today, it's only uh, GSC, so our colleagues from NASA, in Star City in uh, Russia, and here at ESC that we implement basic training for astronauts that fly to the International Space Station. Not only, and that is different from 2009, not only do, do, do we do the basic training of our own astronauts, uh, but for the first time as well, uh, we train astronauts from another country. Uh, Catherine is here with us from, uh, from, those, from Australia, uh, seconded by the Australian Space uh, Agency. Uh, of course, this is regular that this happens in Houston and in Star City, but for ESA, this is the first time. And again, it's a tribute to the quality of our training here. Uh, and then, of course, we need to outlook uh, what will be the outlook of uh, this, uh, this class that is starting training here. The basic training will last for about 13 months. It will end uh, next year in May, uh, and then we will be ready to assign them to the first mission uh, to the International Space Station. Our plan is to have the next flight of one of the, the candidate astronauts from the 2022 class to the ISS in 2026. So that is also something to look forward to. But of course, it's not uh, one flight like we have done with the 2009 class. They have all been able to fly quite quickly and we intend to do the same. So the aim is that before 2030, before the end of this decade, all of them will have had the opportunity to fly to space and to fly to the International Space Station. At the induction ceremony of the new astronaut class, David Parker, the Director of Human Spaceflight and Robotic Exploration at the European Space Agency, announced that an agreement had been reached to send a European or an European astronaut to orbit the moon. Now, we're going towards the moon and we've made the first steps. Europe is now on the critical path for sending humans to the moon through the Artemis program. Thanks to the European service module built in Europe, uh, technology to take humans to the moon. Now, it's the technology we use to go to the moon that's special, but the people that make it happen across the European Space Agency, and especially here in the Astronaut Centre, that makes this all possible. Where are we going to send our astronauts to, first of all, uh, is the Lunar Gateway. We are now building humanity's most distant research outpost. Europe is right at the heart of this program uh, to have a permanent presence around the moon with the Lunar Gateway. And from 2025, this station will become operational. 
and we have already agreed that three ESA astronauts will fly on Artemis missions to the Gateway. And so that's an exciting next step to look forward to. But we don't leave it there. Our plans for lunar exploration are ambitious. We want to be there permanently. It's a museum of four and a half billion years of solar system history, so we really need to explore that museum properly and bring back all the knowledge and skills we can gain by exploring the moon. And to do that, we need the infrastructure. This is the first piece, the gateway. The second piece is all the communications and navigation infrastructure that we will need. And we're pioneering that by working in a commercial partnership with industry to develop lunar communications and navigation satellites, starting in 20, also starting in 2025. But we also need to get our science and our technology to the surface of the moon, and that's why we're building the Argonaut landers. That will start, thanks to the decisions of the last Council of Ministers uh, last year, with the Argonaut program uh, this year. We'll, we'll start uh, selecting the industry and the companies and all the organizations that will build these landers to take Europe to the moon in the 2030s. And who knows, perhaps that European will be a woman. This is The Space Show. 88.3 Southern FM. On this evening's Space Show, we are celebrating the 60th anniversary of the first woman in space, a Russian, and the 40th anniversary of the first American in space. Now, Kerry Doherty is a management team leader at the Space Discovery Center in Adelaide. She's a former curator at the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney. And she spoke to the Space Association of Australia in 2021 about women in space. Now, it wasn't until the 1970s that um, cultural views began to change enough in the United States that NASA finally selected its first uh, group of female astronauts in uh, 1978 as part of the eighth um, astronaut group. And these uh, six ladies were chosen as mission specialists for the space shuttle program. And you can see that they were a group as talented as uh, any group of men selected for the astronaut program. Of course, uh, they were not selected as pilots at this point. Uh, many of them, although did in fact have piloting skills, but they were selected as mission specialists for their, uh, their scientific and uh, technical competence. And it's interesting that once NASA finally selected its first female astronauts, we start to see the appearance of much stronger female characters, um, particularly in, in television. Uh, some of you may have seen the old Buck Rogers serials from the 30s, Buck's love interest, Wilma Deering, who in the Buck Rogers series of 1980 is suddenly um, turned into a very kick-ass military officer, Colonel Wilma Deering. Star Trek finally gets its first uh, female uh, starship captain in the 19, uh, 1990s with uh, Captain Janeway. And, of course, in the 2000s, we see Starbuck from 1978's Battlestar Galactica transformed into a, uh, another kick-ass female character, uh, the new Starbuck. So just the selection of those female NASA astronauts started to bring about uh, some uh, changes across the whole area of science fiction and popular culture in depicting female astronauts. So the, uh, these first mission specialists started to fly in the 1980s and uh, 
The interesting thing here again is that uh, the Soviets hadn't given up on the idea of uh, pipping the Americans to space first. And so when it was announced that uh, Sally Ride would become the first American woman in space and fly on the shuttle in 1983, they quickly whipped up its guy up to the uh, Salyut space station in uh, 1982. And uh, Savitskaya was the first female astronaut, uh, female cosmonaut to fly since Tereshkova. Um, it was rather unfortunate that when the female cosmonaut team was first um, fly a, either a Voskhod or a Soyuz mission, that would be an all-female mission and would include a spacewalk. Um, Sergei Korolev unfortunately died in 1966, and when he passed away, the political support for the female cosmonaut team um, just died away. And so uh, those women were disbanded as a cosmonaut group. But um, Svetlana Savitskaya was recruited, um, as I say, to um, again become the first or the second Soviet female cosmonaut who would fly ahead of the first American astronaut and be the first to... Um, uh, take up residence on a space station. So she was on the Salyut 7 space station. And in, uh, in 1984, when uh, Cathy Sullivan was about to become the first woman to make a spacewalk, the Soviets decided that they would pip the Americans again and they sent um, Savitskaya up to um, conduct the first female spacewalk a couple of months ahead of, um, <coughs> ahead of Cathy Sullivan. Kathy Sullivan's actually a very interesting woman because not only was she an astronaut, she later became the administrator of the uh, National Oceanographic and um, Atmospheric Administration. And in uh, just in 2020, she became the first woman to challenge, to travel to the bottom of the Challenger Deep, which of course is the deepest part of the ocean. So she has literally been from the depths to the stars. Very, very... Um, uh, interesting person herself. She's written a really good uh, bio, uh, autobiography, actually. Um, but again, in um, uh, when it was announced that Shannon Lucid would become the first female uh, American astronaut to travel to the Mir space station, the Russians again thought, well, we better get in ahead of this. We can't have an American female on Mir before we've had a, a Russian female on Mir. And so Yelena Kondakova was recruited, that's her here, as um, the uh, first female Russian to work on the Mir space station. And, in fact, she was there for 169 days. So for a while she held the record for the longest female uh, space flight until Shannon Lucid's flight, which was 179 days. And I actually think that the Americans kept her there the extra 10 days to make sure that they um, took that record away from the Russians. And Shannon's uh, record actually stood until um, another woman, who I'm going to talk about in a little while, made her first flight um, in 2007. Seen um, women progressing in their uh, careers, doing the same kinds of things, as I've said before, as the male astronauts do. So Cathy uh, Thornton became the first uh, military woman to fly on a military shuttle mission. Then in 1995, Eileen Collins became, she was actually the first female uh, pilot in 1995 and then became the first female shuttle commander in 1999. 
and she was uh, also selected to command the return flight mission um, SDS-114 after the um, uh, for the return to flight after the loss of the uh, Columbia. So NASA obviously had a great deal of confidence in her as a mission commander. Uh, there've been two other there were two other female pilots in the uh, A shuttle program, and uh, the one you probably know best, of course, would be Pam Melroy, who herself later went on to command the space shuttle, um, made several flights to the International Space Station. Since then, she's been here in Australia for a while as an advisor to the Australian Space Agency and now, of course, as the Deputy Administrator of NASA. Another thing that NASA felt was very important um, show that uh, various minority groups in the United States could aspire to uh, careers in STEM subjects generally and particularly in the space program. So it was quite important that they had astronauts like uh, Mae Jemison, the first black female astronaut, Eleanor Coa, the first um, Hispanic uh, woman to fly, uh, Kalpana Chavla, the first Indian-American astronaut, and even Barbara Morgan, who uh, was the original backup for Krista McAuliffe, intended to be the first teacher in space. And Barbara finally became the first educator astronaut in 2007. So 21 years after um, the Challenger disaster. Actually, one thing I didn't mention with um, Sally Ride, we know now that she was the first um, LBTQI uh, person in space, but during her period as an astronaut, she kept her uh, sexuality as a private matter. And it was not until after she'd left NASA that she actually came out openly as, uh, as lesbian. So uh, it was unfortunate that despite the fact that NASA had opened up enough to allow uh, or to recruit women and, and women from the various minority groups, they were not open and the society at the time was not open to accepting that uh, you could also have diverse sexuality as well as a diverse ethnic origin. Uh, one of the other interesting uh, things is that for several countries apart from NASA and uh, the Soviet Union or America and the Soviet Union. Um, the first uh, space travellers have been women for uh, Canada, for example, Roberta Bondar, Space Shuttle, Helen Sharman, the um, first Britain to fly in space in 1990. Claudie-André Desay, uh, Hanier, was not the first French cosmonaut, but she was one of the uh, the early Kness cosmonauts to fly uh, both with the Soviet Union or Russia and later with the um, with the United States. The um, this is Elena Kondakova again, who we've seen um, earlier. She flew on the shuttle as well as on the um, on the uh, Mir space station. Soyeon Yi was the very first uh, South Korean to travel in space. Chiaki Mukai, although not the first uh, Japanese to fly, was one of the early members of the Japanese um, team from JAXA. So it's not only American and Russian women who've flown, but women from various other nationalities. And, of course, um, we've also seen uh, people like... Um, Anusha Ansari, who was one of the early female space tourists. China has also recruited women into its uh, astronaut corps. Uh, Colonel Liu, Liu Yang was the first uh, female 
uh, Chinese astronaut, uh, sometimes referred to as Taikonauts, otherwise referred to as Yuan Yuan. And she flew in uh, 2012 on the Shangzhou 9 mission. She was actually followed on Shangzhou 10 by um, Wang Yaping, who was also the uh, first woman to uh, live on the Tiangong 1 space station back in uh, 2013. She also uh, acted the role, somewhat like Barbara Morgan, of being a teacher in space and gave the first lessons uh, from space to uh, Chinese children. And, of course, more recently, just this last month, she's become the uh, the first Chinese woman to make a spaceport on the um, Tianhe uh, module, which is uh, currently in orbit. Now, more recently, of course, women have played roles uh, sort of every role on the um, the International Space Station. Yelena Serova, um, only the fourth uh, Russian um, cosmonaut, female cosmonaut. She visited the space station uh, across 2014-2015, spending 167 days. Samantha Cristoforetti, one of the uh, long-term stay ESA cosmonauts. We've also seen in um, 2013 NASA actually selected Group 21. This was the first time that the number of female and male astronauts in the class had been equal. So there were, um, so you see, four men and four women. And two of those women, um, Christina Koch and Jessica Meyer, went on to uh, conduct the first all-woman spacewalk in 2019. Um, Christina Koch, in fact, holds the record for the longest single space flight by a woman. She was on the ISS for nearly 11 months between uh, 2019 and 2020. And I wanted to mention in particular this lady, Peggy Whitson, who began as a, uh, she was part of the uh, biomedical team at uh, Johnson Space Centre, ultimately was uh, selected uh, for an astronaut. She's actually now spent the most cumulative time in space for any US astronaut um, of 665 days. She was the seventh woman to walk in space and she's made now 10 spacewalks. So she has the most EVAs and the most time spent on EVA over 60 hours um, of all female space travelers. She was the first female commander of the ISS and she's actually been commanded twice she was also the first female chief of the astronaut office between 2009 and 2012. Um, and in addition to that, she was the commander of the NEMO-5 mission. This is the, an aquatic habitat that NASA uses for um, experiments in um, crew dynamics, long duration spaceflight, living together, this kind of thing. And so she's, again, another astronaut, aquanaut who has uh, experienced it uh, underwater as well as in space. Pretty amazing woman. Now, we know that uh, in the not-too-distant future, it's not going to be 2024, but say maybe around 2026, NASA will finally go back to the moon. And uh, last year they announced the Artemis team, which included a number of uh, women. And from somewhere among this group, the first woman on the moon will be selected. We know that NASA has said specifically that the um, return to the moon in the Artemis program will include the first woman and the first person of colour. So somebody in these groups will represent the first woman and that first person of colour. 
So that uh, is going to be a very exciting mission when it finally occurs. And perhaps one of these days we'll actually see women and men working together on a mission to Mars as well. That was Kerry Doherty, a management team member at the Space Discovery Centre in Adelaide, talking to the Space Association of Australia in 2021. And just a note that it is tomorrow going to be 50 years since the Skylab 2 crew returned. The crew that saved the Skylab space station, America's first space station. And if you want to find out more about uh, Joe Kerwin, he's going to be our guest at the meeting uh, by video link, uh, delayed video link. And that's going to be on Monday at between 7 and 9 o'clock at the Golden Gate Hotel, which is at 238 Clarendon Street, on the corner of Clarendon Street and Coventry Street. So please come along. The meeting is free, but you can purchase meals from 6 o'clock. So uh, please come along. Well, this has been The Space Show. I'm Andrew Rennie. Hopefully we'll be back next week.